Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. We're in the middle of a series called Can I Get a Witness? And what we're talking about is evangelism. And if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Matthew 9 and put a marker in 2 Corinthians 5 if you brought your Bible with you. If you didn't, don't worry about it. The verses will be on the screens behind me. Or if you have a smart device, you can follow along just as well. The title of today's message is The Table of the Believer. I thought it was very appropriate on a week like Thanksgiving where we talk about who's going to be at the table on Thanksgiving for us to talk about who is supposed to be at our table as a believer in Jesus. I think a lot of times as believers, we talk about the fellowship of believers, which is important. We're going to do a series on that after the first of the year. But I don't think we talk quite enough about everybody else that's supposed to be at our table. Go back to when you were a kid. If, if you grew, in, uh, grew up in church like I did, my dad was a pastor uh, growing up, and if you wanted to go to a friend's house and you go to your parents and you'd say, hey, can I go spend the night at Johnny's house? If your parents didn't know the kid's family, there was a question that your parents would ask. Does anybody remember what the question was? Do they go to church, right? And then the second question, if there was a second question, was which church do they go to? Then if there's a third question, it was, and how often do they go, right? And you couldn't go over to Johnny's house if they didn't go to church. At least that's how it was in my world. And I I understand the premise behind that, especially with growing children. But my concern is that many adults are still behaving like little children. And that is, it's almost like we're looking for permission to be around lost people. And the point of this message is not just to give you permission to be around lost people. The point of this message is to remind you this is our commission. This is the Great Commission. And we cannot fulfill the Great Commission without being around lost people. And some of you are going to go, man, this is a really elementary message. I already know all of this. Here would be my pushback to that. If you're not living it, you don't know it, you just know about it, all right? So check yourself before you wreck yourself and start going, this is so elementary. If you're not living it, it's actually more challenging than you think because if it were elementary, we'd be living it, right? So Matthew chapter nine is a really important passage as it relates to evangelism. And I want you to see how Matthew operates in this passage, right? Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and did the smart thing, followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? It's no wonder the Pharisees were never a part of a growing church. Why does your teacher eat with such trash? When Jesus heard this, he said, 
Because healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then Jesus added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, parting shot at the Pharisees. But I came for those who know they are sinners. I want to give you an equation for evangelization that we see in Matthew chapter 9. Okay? It's a really simple equation, but I believe we're all supposed to live by this evangelization equation, all right? And we'll use Matthew since it comes out of this passage, all right? Here's how it goes. Jesus called or saw Matthew. That's what we just read. He saw, he noticed, and called Matthew. Matthew followed Jesus. Matthew's friends met Jesus. This is a very simple-sounding equation. But what I've learned, spending the greater part of my life around believers, it is a very difficult equation for many Christians to live out. Now, before we talk about the three people at Matthew's table, we need to talk about who was not at Matthew's table. As we read this passage, could you tell who was not sitting at Matthew's table? The Pharisees, right? The Pharisees weren't at the table, verse 11. But when the Pharisees saw this, in other words, they were bystanders, they were observers, not participants. When they saw this, they asked the disciples, why did your teacher eat with such scum? The Pharisees were a confused group of people. They believed that contact with that which was filthy made you filthy. In ancient times, Eating a meal with someone was the equivalent of identifying with them. In other words, it was completely scandalous for Jesus to be sharing a meal with these disreputable sinners. So, the Pharisees' philosophy as a response to this was to separate themselves from that which seemed filthy. Now, here's the problem. That has actually become a fairly popular philosophy in the church today. I call it religious isolationism. It's when believers separate themselves from the world and insulate themselves with nothing but believers. And we actually call this behavior godly. What you'll see in this message in scripture is that that is not godly at all. This philosophy the Pharisees had to stay away from that which seemed filthy is actually a works-based philosophy because here's what they're saying. I will stay clean as long as I don't touch what is dirty. That is wrong. The only thing that makes us clean is the blood of the spotless lamb of God. That's it. It's not staying away from that which is dirty. The Pharisees were acting like sin was a disease you could catch. But think about this for a minute. How many of you have ever visited someone in the hospital and not gotten sick while you were there? Just put your hand up. Okay, put it up high. Look around. Okay, we act like sin is something you can catch just by being in the room with it. Yet we know we can all go to a hospital and visit a sick friend or family member and not catch 
what is going around, right? Think about this. If sin was something you could catch, a sickness you can catch, Jesus would have been the sickest among us. He was constantly surrounded by sinners, yet he never caught sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, even though he was always around sinners, he never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ, not through staying away from filth from dirty people. No, we're made right with Christ, with God through Christ. Here's another way to say it. It is entirely possible to have connection with a sinner without being contaminated by their sin. But if you are convinced that just being in the same room with a sinner causes you to be guilty of their sin, what will happen? You'll never go near them. And here's the problem you can never reach what you refuse to touch. And we're called to reach. This brings up a really important question. Why do so many Christians keep their distance from lost people? I think the simple answer is misinterpreted scripture. They just take scriptures out of context and they've heard scriptures quoted over the years and they've just built a dogma. It's not theology, it's just a dogma around some of these misinterpreted scriptures. Let me just give you three things to consider. Here's the first one. The first reason why many believers stay away from lost people. A fear of worldliness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, of course, none of us want to be guilty of, of, having, of not having the love of the Father in us. But we act like 1 John 2 says, now don't love the people in the world because if you love the people in the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. That's not what 1 John 2.15 is saying. It's saying do not love the world or the things the world offers. It does not say don't love the people in this world. In fact, the love of the Father is supposed to be extended towards those who do not yet know him. We can't run from them just because we're afraid of worldliness. Here's the second reason that I think many believers stay away from lost people. The fear of appearance of evil. This is a massive problem in the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, and I'm going to quote this, read it out of the King James Version, because it just sounds even more spiritual when I do so. It says this, Abstain from all appearance of evil. Have you ever heard the phrase guilty by association? It's a bunch of bubkis, okay? If you could actually be guilty by association, Jesus would have been guilty on all counts because he was always around guilty people, sinners, people screwing up. But Jesus was not guilty by association. I think the devil uses this to keep us away from the lost. I remember when I first moved to Scottsdale, I knew more lost people in this town than I did believers. And some of my friends who were lost invited me to hang out with them and they were going to a sports bar. And, and my first thought was, I, I, can't, I can't go to a sports bar. I'm starting a church. What if someone from the church sees me here? And these guys who don't know Jesus, they're lost and they're alcoholics. 
people are just going to think. And, and here's basically what the enemy was trying to get me to believe. Preston, you can't go be around these lost alcoholics because if anyone from the church sees you, they're going to think you're a lost alcoholic. That's like saying you're a golfer just because you play golf. I've seen you play golf. You stink. <laughs> I'm not a lost alcoholic just because I go hang out with my friends who may be battling alcohol addiction who don't know Jesus yet. And listen to me, who better to hang out with them than us? But if we're so afraid of what the Pharisees will say about us, we will run from the people Jesus died for. And here's what I think. We need to be more concerned with the cries of the hurting than we are with the shouts of the Pharisees. I'm tired of worrying about what the Pharisees will think. I am not guilty by association. Now listen, hear me. I'm not saying do everything they do. But I am saying if I, here's the best way to say it. Only a Pharisee would judge the faithful with only a few of the facts. Well, Preston, must, he must be backsliding. Listen, who, who should I be around all the time? Pastors? Have you ever been around us? That gets old fast. <laughs> I mean, really? Do you want me to be bored and miserable? I gotta have some lost people in my life. If I don't, I'll forget why it is I do this. But when we're afraid of the appearance of evil, we will run, not just from evil, we'll run from the appearance. Listen, live your life in such a way where you're okay with someone saying you're guilty by association, knowing you stand before God not guilty. Here's the third reason. Fear of being unequally yoked. I think the third reason that many believers stay away from lost people is the fear of being unequally yoked. We've, many of us grew up hearing this. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawless, lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now I'm going to say something that I hope you never forget. And it's a little bit strong, but it's designed so that you'll remember it. Okay? This passage is talking more about not having babies with unbelievers than it is not having coffee with unbelievers. We act like unequally yoked means can't have any contact, can't have contact with the lost, stay away, can't be unequally yoked. How do you know if you're or when you are unequally yoked with a lost person? Here's the simple answer. When they influence you more than you influence them. That's how you know. Unequally yoked doesn't mean contact, okay? Unequally yoked means a, a partnership that is not God-honoring. That's the easiest way to explain being unequally yoked. Now, in the church, the problem, in my opinion, is many of the most religious people in the church are the ones that are viewed as the most mature spiritually. And the problem with many of the most religious people in church is they're the ones furthest away from lost people. So we have these young believers and these young people growing up in the house of the Lord and the family of God going, well, they're supposedly, they're looked at as the most spiritually mature and they're never around lost people, so that must be what godliness is. No, 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 no. 
You see what godliness is by seeing how Jesus lived his life on this earth. Jesus was always around the lost. But the Pharisees, they weren't. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, I want to read this to you one more time as we go into who are the three people that are supposed to be sitting at your table at all times. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Here's the first person that must be sitting at your table as a believer, and I know this is just uh, a reminder, but we cannot forget the Savior. Jesus was sitting at Matthew's table. Here's what's so fascinating to me. Because the Pharisees were so against sitting with these tax collectors and disreputable sinners, they didn't even realize it cost them a meal with the Savior. They were willing to give up a meal with Jesus to make a statement about the lost. I remember years ago, uh, I was on vacation and I was having my quiet time on the beach and I was running uh, right close to the water. And I, I mean, I'm just having this amazing time with the Lord and, and just couldn't be any better. I got my headphones on, I'm listening to my worship and I'm just running along, talking with the Lord, and out of nowhere, I just felt the Lord go, did you just see that? And I went, what, did I see what? The ocean, the waves, the, this is a moment. Like, this is, this is awesome time right here. He goes, no, no, did you just see that? So did I see what? He goes, turn around. And there was somebody that had run past me. And he said, that, that person doesn't know me. I have a question for you. Since you didn't notice them run by, Preston, if I had to choose between jogging with you, having our time together, or stopping our time so I could go chase them down the beach because they're drowning in pain, sorrow, fear, condemnation, Preston, which choice do you think I would make? It's an unbelievably loaded theological question. And while my young theological mind was trying to come up with the right answer, the Lord just goes, let me answer it for you. I've already told you. And I didn't just say one versus one. I said I would leave 99 of you momentarily to go chase after that one. Preston, I appreciate how much you enjoy our time together. But if our time gets you so distracted that you don't notice who I died for running past you, Something might be wrong here. I'll never forget it. And what I felt the Lord was saying was, listen, you want to sit at my table? I always have that guy at my table. You want to sit with me? Go chase after him. But what does it look like practically to have Jesus at your table? I want to give you two things, all right? As it relates to evangelism, these are two things that are important to remember. What does it look like to have Jesus at your table? Here's the first one. You know Jesus is sitting at your table when you don't do what you know you shouldn't do. I've heard believers use as an excuse missionary dating, you know, kind of mentality where I know it was wrong, but I was doing it because I was trying to reach him. And, you know, Paul said, I'm willing to do anything just to save some. So that's my philosophy. It's not talking about doing wrong, okay? What would it be like if you remembered that Jesus was always sitting at your table? Would it change your decisions, your behavior, 
Listen, what this really relates to is a word called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy costs us our credibility as Christians. And here's what our lost friends basically say when they catch us doing things we shouldn't be doing. They, in essence, respond saying, why would I listen to what you have to say about what Jesus wants me to do if I'm sitting here watching you do the very thing Jesus told you not to do? I'm not listening to you. Okay, that's not worth it to me. When Jesus is sitting at your table, it's consistent accountability. Not condemnation, but accountability and the conviction that comes with it. We don't move the line. 1 Timothy 1.19 says, Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences, and as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Here's the second reason. The second way you know Jesus is sitting at the table. We don't water it down. I made a joke about me the first time I tried to witness to somebody. I totally watered it down incorrectly. It was absolutely wrong. And of course, I was witnessing to a pastor, right? And that's how God kind of helped to remind me, Preston, there's only one way and it's a narrow road. Don't you dare water this down because living water that is lied about isn't living. You let this living water stand on its own. I don't need your help. You just bring them a glass of it, right? But what does it mean? Luke 5, 32, I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. We can't water it down. Now, we don't have to condemn, but we cannot water it down, right? So how do I know I'm not watering it down? The simple answer is, I'm not hiding Jesus. Well, how do I know I'm not hiding Jesus? Simple question. Are you known for knowing Jesus? When I'm known for knowing Jesus, it's impossible to be guilty of hiding Jesus at my table. Listen, it should be impossible to sit down at the table of a believer and not feel like you had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus, our Savior, sits at the table. Point number two, the second type of person that was at Matthew's table that needs to be at ours is those already saved. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together as believers with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. We need other believers sitting at our table. Maybe you just gave your life to Jesus, and you know more lost people than you do believers. That's okay. That's all right. But I, I want you to know you need believers at your table. Well, Preston, why do I need believers at my table? Let me give you just one reason. I can't go through all of them, but let me just give you one that will help you understand the importance. A lost person can encourage you, but they can't build you up. A lost person can absolutely encourage you, but they cannot build you up in your faith. Here's how you know, because they don't know the builder. They can encourage you, and that's great, but it plateaus. You need people in your life as a believer in Jesus who can build you up in your faith. 
Now, Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron. It does not say iron sharpens copper or copper sharpens iron. It says iron sharpens iron. Okay, let me just very quickly tell you what type of believers you need at your table as a believer in Jesus. There are three types, I believe, okay? Here's the first type of believer you need at your table. A believer who's walked with God a lot longer than you have. You need consistent connection and dialogue, relationship with a believer who's walked with Jesus for far longer than you have, okay? The second type of believer is you need someone who's in the same stage of walking with God as you are. It's fun to run at the same pace, at the same stage of the race. I have several friends like this, and it's encouraging. If all I did was hang around believers who've walked with God 20 and 30 years longer than I have, it could get a little disappointing from time to time to just look at them and go, oh, I'm so far away from that. I'll never be like that. But when I have people who are in the same, running the same pace, the same stage of the race, it's fun because you, you remember, okay, I'm, I'm running towards that, but this is where I am, and they're there too. But the third type of believer all of us need at our table is a believer who has not walked with Jesus as long as you have. Maybe they just got saved. Maybe you've walked with God for 25 years and they've walked with, with Jesus for five. Now, Preston, why should I walk with all three types of believers? Here's the answer. Because if you only walk with one type of believer, then you're going to get an imperfect or impartial perspective of the family of God. But when you walk with all three types, you have a healthy, balanced perspective about this walk with Jesus. We all need believers at the table. But we cannot be so surrounded by believers that it comes at the expense of the lost. And that's point number three. Who was the third type of person at Matthew's table? Those not yet saved. Those not yet saved. Matthew had friends who were miserable. He had friends who were liars. He had friends who were thieves. He had friends who were drunkards. He had friends in really low places. Garth Brooks. But Matthew also had a friend that he knew could help all of his friends. And Matthew knew, if I can just get them to the table in the same room with Jesus, it'll all change. They'll find what they're looking for. That empty hole will be filled. If I can just get them in the same room with Jesus, this was the burning desire in Matthew's heart. And one of the things I love most about Matthew is he did not keep his relationship with Jesus selfish. He shared it. He follows Jesus, and the first thing we find him doing is throwing a party at his house. Jesus and the disciples come, and he makes sure his lost friends are welcome to the table as well. This makes me think of one of my favorite one-liners that I felt the Lord has ever given me to this point related to this idea of who sits at the table of the believers. And let me say it like this. 
if all of the people you love love Jesus, you don't love enough people. If all of the people you know know Jesus, you don't know enough people. Here's another way to say it. If you don't have non-Christians in your life, you're doing the Christian life wrong. Jesus was always surrounded with the lost. 20 years ago, when I, when I first got into ministry, when I would lead someone to Christ, typically, after they'd give their life to Christ, one of the first things I would, would talk to them about was basically behavior modification, which is not the best thing to lead off with, looking back. Now make sure you don't do this. Now don't say, whatever you do, don't say this, okay? Now stay away from these kind of people, but be careful not to touch this, you know? You know one of the things I've really learned over 20 years of ministry and leading people to Jesus? It's one of the first things I say to them now after they give their life to Christ is listen, whatever you do, do not turn your back on your unsaved friends. It's almost as though the church makes newly saved people feel guilty because they know so many lost people. And you know what I think? I think Jesus celebrates every one of those relationships. But I just wonder, if we were to take a poll of the average Christian, I wonder what the math would look like if we asked, how many believers do you know compared to how many unbelievers? I bet you the math is more than 10 to 1. That's why I tell lost people, hey, as the church, we're not doing that great of a job retaining relationships with the lost. Please fight for your relationship with your unsaved friends. Don't give up. They need you now more than ever. And you don't have to preach. Now, don't keep doing what you used to do with them. That's called repentance. But don't turn your back on them. Now, you have to know, if you're going to adopt that type of lifestyle, the Pharisees are going to make judgments about you. And here's how you know, because they did it with Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And the Pharisees, they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds or her results. He says, I have a purpose in all of this. But all of you judgmental Pharisees, look at me spending time with these hurting, broken people making judgments about me. See, Jesus wasn't concerned with what the Pharisees were thinking when he sat down at the table with the lost. Jesus was concerned what would happen to the lost if he didn't sit down at the table. This is where we need to live our lives. If we're not careful, Christianity will be more about what we won't get close to rather than who we stay close to. Jesus. Matthew 9, 12, don't ever forget this because this, when I came to Scottsdale, I knew more lost people than I did believers and I felt guilty. I'm just being honest. I felt like people were gonna judge me and one day I just felt the Lord say, Preston, why do you think I sent you here? Do you really think I sent you here to start a church where all they did was have a weekly family reunion? Son, I didn't bring you here to start a church that gathers 
as a family. I sent you here to start a church that grows my family. And that's when he reminded me of Matthew 9, 12. Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. You know, we hear people say, birds of a feather flock together. Such a judgmental statement. Preston must be backsliding. He's hanging around sinners again. No, Preston's doing his job, not his job as a pastor, his job as a son of God. Birds of a feather flock together. If you say that to me, I'm going to slap you. <laughs> and then I'm going to truthfully tell you, birds with broken wings need a vet. And I'm not going to run away from birds with broken wings just because I'm afraid some Pharisee is going to say I'm broken too. I'm not going to behave like a sinner. But listen, sin isn't a disease you can catch. It's a decision you make. We've got to have the lost around us. When I was growing up, we played this game called Would You Rather? And you'd ask all these random questions. Would you rather marry this person or this person? Would you rather have this job or that job? You know, one of the best ones I've ever heard is this. Would you rather be the best player on the last place team or the worst player on the championship team? Now, this is a conundrum for me because I like being good, but I hate losing. So I don't want to be the best player on a losing team because I would punch all my teammates in the face because I get tired of losing. But I also don't want to be the worst player on the championship team because we all know the worst player on the championship team never even sniffs the court. I like to play. Here's what I've come to understand. That our calling as believers is not to be the best player on a losing team because our team is the winning team, but it's also not to be the worst player on the championship team. Here's our calling as believers, to be contributors on the team. I just want to be a contributor. But what does that look like in the family of God on this winning team of ours? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, starting in verse 18. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Thank God. And he gave us as believers this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we as believers are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. This is our responsibility as sons and daughters of God. It is to grow the family of God, to be contributors to the family business of reconciling people to God. I just wonder what it was like that night at Matthew's house after dinner. You know, hundreds of people were always following Jesus everywhere he went. And I wonder if there wasn't some little boy who had snuck his way to the front of the crowd, peering through the window, standing on a bale of hay, 
just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus and maybe hear one or two words he might say. Dinner is now over. Everyone is leaving. Jesus, the disciples, and the disreputable sinners are all coming out of the house. And I wonder if the little boy would have gone and tugged on the jacket of one of the disreputable sinners and said, man, I, I, I see these disciples always with Jesus, but I've never seen you with Jesus before. I wanted to be in there at that meal. Can you please tell me how in the world did someone like you get to sit at that table with someone like him? And you know what the man's answer would have been. Oh, buddy, I got a seat at that table because of Matthew. I wonder if one day, if there will be a moment in heaven where there are thousands upon thousands of people fellowshipping, talking about how they each got there. You know what my hope and prayer is? My prayer is that hundreds would be heard saying, I got here because of Jesus, but I met Jesus because of you. Thanks for joining us on Gateway.Live. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com.